in this episode of the SAS Communication Journal Club podcast, we talk about inclusivity and we make announcements about our next reader chat and some internship opportunities with our team. But first things first, our intro. Hello and welcome to the SciComm JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communications approaches. SciComm JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize, and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today, we have behind the mics the usual suspects, Sherry, Heather, Melissa, and Mina Vena. And we have, of course, a very special guest with us. This time around, that's Tia Martino, one of the first placed winners of our State Your Mission Challenge, which took place earlier this year. Hi, everyone. Hi. Hi. Welcome, Tia. We're so glad to have you here. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and share with us your winning science communication mission? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for having me, guys. Um, I'm a first year PhD student at the University of New Hampshire um, starting this week. Uh, I actually received my bachelor's degree from the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth in physics. Um, all of the research I've done so far has been in dark matter detection efforts. Um, I've worked at Fermilab and the University of Washington. Um, I've also had experience teaching at the high school and college levels. Uh, my SciComm mission has actually grown and evolved since I entered the contest, um, as my career has also evolved and changed. Initially, I was going to focus on a blog uh, discussing my personal experiences in STEM as a queer woman, but unfortunately, as a graduate student, I don't have nearly as much writing time as I would like. Um, so I've been more so focusing on bringing that discussion alive through Twitter um, and real life outreach events. Welcome, Tia. So in June, we had a very interesting chat, which was hosted by Heather, and it was on a very interesting and very timely topic. So Heather, why don't you tell us what was it about? So we asked the question, does science communication promote inclusivity? A big question, of course. And so to establish some sort of a foundation for this discussion, we reviewed the paper, Reimagining Publics as Non-Participation, exploring exclusion from science communication through the experiences of low-income minority ethnic groups by Emily Dawson. And this study was really pretty interesting and it was pretty unique. First, the paper actually explored science communication from the perspectives of people who are most at risk of exclusion, particularly low-income and ethnic minorities. And secondly, models of public knowledge and attitudes towards science often tend to overlook the roles of structural inequalities and the intersections of race, ethnicity, gender, class, etc. So when we're talking about structural inequalities, what do we actually mean by that? Well, it means injustices from unquestioned biases and oppressive features of political, social, or economic institutions that disadvantage certain groups. So this study was unique because it also was based on qualitative research. So it's really interesting, big question asking, qualitative study looking at structural inequalities really focused in on two main research questions. The first question was, in what kinds of science communication practices did participants engage in or not engage in? 
And the second piece of that was how did the participants experience exclusion from science communication practices? This study found that the science communication practices that, science, that participants engaged in were limited to everyday popular and accessible activities like watching TV or using the internet. So participants' perceptions of what was considered to be quote unquote science communication really reflected dominant cultural and political views about participation, such as visiting a science museum or things that we would probably think of as sort of conventional science communication activities. However, the more quote unquote popular a science activity was perceived by participants, the less likely that they were to actually have access to or engage in those activities. So to the second question, how participants experienced exclusion from science communication practices is actually a lot to unpack. So there's two features of oppression that we normally think about, specifically in this paper, focusing on cultural imperialism and powerlessness. Yes, all big words. And those impacted exclusion from science communication among those participants in this study. So specifically, cultural imperialism refers to when the culture, views, practices of the dominant group are perceived as universal at the expense of those marginalized groups. And this was really reflected in participants' observations of science communication practices as being Eurocentric and upholding racist stereotypes, such as representing perceptions of Africa as being burdened by disease and saved by the West, uh, which was reflective of what we call maybe a white savior narrative. Such observations highlighted the disempowering, misrepresentative, racist, and gendered nature of narratives and reflected whiteness as a dominant form of cultural capital that's embedded in science communication practices. So the stories, practices, knowledge that the participants actually valued were not really perceived as being reflected in those dominant science communication practices. In other words, their values and voices were not represented and there was an implicit suggestion that maybe those values and views don't count as much. So one thing is that representations of cultures, knowledge, and people also reflect deeply rooted assumptions about power, which affects whose voices are heard or not heard in science communication practices. So the perception of powerlessness was closely associated with class or income, particularly for those groups with limited political or professional authority who are not necessarily respected for their opinions or status in society. So structural inequalities, again, those unquestioned biases or features of social, political, or economic systems that disadvantage certain groups, affected participation through a lack of money and free time because leisure time requires financial means to engage in science communication. Participants viewed the public, quote unquote, the public, for science communication as being predominantly white, as well as having the disposable income and free time associated with middle and upper classes. So you can kind of start to see through this study that they are perceiving science communication and those people that participate uh, in science communication as being very specific to predominantly white and again, middle and upper classes. So it's pretty easy to think about how one might feel excluded in that context. Uh, this is Sherry. It's interesting that you bring up economic considerations because as we always do, we uh, survey our followers uh, and ask their opinion about the topic that we're going to be discussing about. And this time we did it both on Twitter and Instagram. 
uh, and they asked them what they view as factors that limit them um, in participating in SciComm and um, what factors are not considered by current SciComm efforts. So what are they leaving out that represent them? Um, so the consideration or what um, got the most votes was economic considerations. And this is something that um, scientific community uh, organizers that organize conferences, workshops, uh, SciComm camps, uh, they have to realize that most people in science, most graduate students and postdocs really can't afford to pay for a plane and go to an event and uh, book a hotel and take off time work. Most of them have neither the time or the resources. Um, even taking classes that would cost them money. So um, there are grants out there that would give to people money to go there in terms of grants of stuff, but they're not really widespread. Uh, so that it's, it's interesting that that sentiment was also um, reflected in our poll. And we had a lot of feedback during those pre-Twitter chat polls that we did. We had a yes, yeah. engagement from that and some really interesting ideas actually came out of that that I think really informed our conversation about inclusion in science communication. And I think what, for me, one of the most interesting aspects of those pre-chat pre polls and the discussion that we had online was really highlighting the different facets of inclusion that were brought up, such as neurodiversity and even language. And another interesting piece of the chat and the discussions that we had um, about inclusion before the chat and actually during the chat was also that we were talking about kind of two different aspects of inclusion. The paper, of course, addressed, you know, inclusion in science communication from participants. So how do we engage with the public? But our chats and our Twitter, our Twitter, Twitter chat polls actually focused also on inclusion in science communication among SciCommers ourselves. That's true. The, um, consideration of neurodiversity was probably one of the most interesting things that came across. And I say interesting, it's because I'd never considered it. One of the people who commented on that is a scientist who is on the autism spectrum disorder. And she was saying that we're always told us as scientists to do public outreach, uh, but the, she said that you have to take into consideration that people in the autism spectrum disorder are not comfortable in social interactions. So the scientific community has to be really careful in the trend that is increasing where they tie the level of public engagement with uh, career advancement. So that's uh, something um, I think that it escapes the attention of people among this enthusiasm to get the scientists out there and talk. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and to go on to, with uh, with what Sherry said, these considerations are crucial for successful science communication. And I argued that the scientific process is not complete without communicating the findings to the public. Uh, and that is important to consider. It's important to consider the challenges individuals face in communicating that research. Um, and it doesn't mean that they are not 
doing their job correctly. It simply means that this is something that uh, we have to consider going forward. And as science communicators, we always have to challenge ourselves when we consider whose voices are being heard and who is being represented. And I think this article uh, is, and, and the chat showed that we are barely scratching the surface of this issue. Tia, I'd love to know what you think about all this because you're an expert in this area. Yes. Yeah, um, so I thought, especially about the Twitter chat, the people who were reaching out, we heard a lot of voices not necessarily usually heard in the science communication communities. And I think just even having them participate and being able to listen to their voices was really important. Um, because as somebody who is not neurotypical myself, it was really important to hear the perspective of somebody who is on the autism spectrum, because not everyone would think of something like that usually, but you know, there's other voices that also need to be heard. And that's really interesting that you bring that up because I think that was exactly what happened, um, you know, with our with our Twitter chat is that we really, I think, blew open the door, so to speak, on what inclusion actually means beyond just racial diversity or gender diversity, because those are the two that come up in the literature the most. Well, and that's what we've kind of been socially programmed to think is diversity. And we don't always consider um, even sexuality or economic standing or any anything like that. Um, but the, these are to be considered, too, because these are these are things that do cause to people to hinder their success in in the scientific fields that they've chosen and in science communication. And I do wonder, like, if that is something that, you know, maybe we just haven't talked enough about. I mean, Tia, what, what are your thoughts on all of this and sort of how science communication might actually expand this conversation and where might we do that? Yeah, I definitely think we need to work on redefining inclusion and diversity. Um, I don't think many people are fully aware of what we mean by underrepresented groups. And I think redefining what we mean by underrepresented groups will really help us to, you know, kind of have a more tangible idea of who is actually being left out. But in addition to that, I think making safe and comfortable spaces for those people once we are able to identify them is going to be a game changer because if we can get them to participate, um, then they become representation. And then there should be a natural flow of influx of people from these underrepresented groups participating. So what would you say would be a better working definition of representation? Because that's a really interesting Interesting comment. Would you mind elaborating on that? Oh gosh, this is a big one. <laughs> <laughs> we have time. Um, so by representation, I definitely mean, so from the perspective of myself, a graduate student um, who is in academia currently, you know, I've never, up until at the University of New Hampshire, I've never had a female professor or teacher who I necessarily clicked with as a woman myself. Um, and so even beyond that, I didn't have anybody doing what I wanted to be doing who I could identify with. And even more so now that I've come out as bisexual, I don't have any sexual minority faculty to look up to as inspiration or anything like that. Um, so when you have faculty representation who you can identify with. I think people, those people in particular, share a lot of experiences that you have probably lived through. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate because we see at the college and graduate levels um, a lot of first generation students who maybe don't have anybody else in their family who have done it before. They're kind of navigating these things for the first time. But if they have that representation there, they're going to have somebody to look up to who maybe 
knows about professional organizations of similar people they can join or maybe they know about like race specific conferences and things that these people can go to um whereas if you're kind of navigating this for yourself for the first time it's a very big and daunting process it's a very big world um and it can be scary so it sounds like you're saying that like representation is not just showing up um, and just having somebody just sort of be present, but really it's about like the, the difference between diversity um, or representation and inclusion is really having people be part of the process and actually be able to participate fully. Is that kind of a way to capture? Um, Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to be careful too, because with a lot of underrepresented groups, the work shouldn't necessarily fall on them to be included. It has to be done by the people who are already established in whatever field, especially science communication in this instance, uh, to make room for those people to feel comfortable, which isn't necessarily an overnight thing. Um, it's definitely a big effort that everybody has to take part in. So what would that require? Because I think that's a really um, important piece of this conversation is not just sort of presenting this as just a big question that's sort of abstract, but what do we actually do about this? Like, what are some of the like steps or takeaways or recommendations that, you know, you might have in terms of making people feel more comfortable, welcome, um, as you said, create a safe and comfortable space? Definitely. Um... Well, I think the most important thing that we can do is not to put words into the mouths of other people, especially from underrepresented groups. I think listening to people who are not necessarily seated at the table yet um, and being able to listen to their needs and wants as somebody for the first time is maybe pursuing this as a career, I think that is the utmost important thing that we can do. So that way we know exactly how we can accommodate an individual in that situation and not necessarily just make assumptions. Uh, this is Sherry. Chia, I was wondering how would you suggest, uh, let's say, graduate schools or um, scientific institutions to proactively go about identifying people who need special consideration and support? Um, so this is kind of a tricky thing um, because I've noticed personally in my experiences a lot of the students who end up not successful are those students who maybe fall into an underrepresented group who don't want to speak up about their situation um, and maybe because they don't have representation in their department. Um, so I think making it creating an environment in which these students could feel comfortable stepping forward even if it's just confiding in other students maybe not confiding in somebody above them but maybe at the same level uh creating a comfortable atmosphere for them um within colleagues rather than authoritative figures might be helpful yeah i mean uh, i think this these type of considerations is uh, really requires specific um, training for in, in the part of scientific institutions and I teach at a community college and we really community colleges are really good at uh, giving support to underrepresented communities so I can tell you some of the things we do uh, for example in the signatures to our emails we always show our um, gender identity preferences the, the so we write our name, yeah, the pronouns, um, and then uh, there are the support systems that are out there. Um, we actively 
promoted to students uh, instead of just pointing anybody out and pointing anybody out specifically. And also one of the things I do in my beginning of semester, I always have a couple of slides saying no matter what your situation is, who you love, where you come from, what your economic situation is, uh, you are entitled to a quality education. And you should, if you need help, don't hesitate to come talk to me. And I also have a, a biography assignment that is confidential. So these are some of the things that community colleges are really good at doing. But unfortunately, research-based institutions are lacking in a lot of different ways that has to do with education and support of the students. In my experience, um, when it comes to finding solutions for this issue, um, because now that I work in science policy, this is one of the this is one of the things that uh, has really been brought to their attention. They have been actively working on. On, on bridging that gap. As a researcher, you have to constantly challenge yourself to, to see what the problem is because it's never the surface problem. It's always something that's much deeper than what everybody thinks is the problem. And I think that you know, be, seeing the diversity of, of his team and it's not just, you know, about uh, race or gender identity or, um, or anything like that. But he's just getting everyone in and saying, we're all in this together. We're only going to go forward if we're all going forward together. And it's not a matter of creating a new group, but, you know, including them in the, the group that's already established. I think that's an interesting point that you bring up, Melissa, about that there's something that's deeper and it's. I think that's really important and, and that's really where this paper came in and I think offered something a bit different. It, and in policy, um, of course, you know, that's also where I spend a good chunk of my time um, is, you know, when we talk about these things and we look at, you know, we talk about social justice and racial justice and a lot of these larger questions about, um, you know, not just representation on the surface, but actual inclusion. Um, in the processes in the institutions themselves and so i think when we think about these you know the the question of how do we improve inclusivity in, in science and science communication we need to look at the institutions themselves and i want to go back to the paper and that's where the structural inequalities came in both on the cultural end but also in the in the the tangible the functional end in terms of economics uh in terms of political systems um it's the power who's making the decisions, ultimately whose views are seen as more important and who, and how does that affect the outcome? And I think that that's something that we're sort of new to um, in the science space and then even more so I think when we talk about inclusivity in science communication is that we haven't quite got below the surface yet. Um, we're still kind of looking at things from a, a superficial view um, if you will, and I don't mean that to be insulting, but I don't know that we've dug deep enough to say, what are these institutions that we are creating, that we're perpetuating, um, if we're not questioning them and questioning who's not there? And so I, I think this is um, one of the reasons that this paper stuck. Um, this is one of the reasons that I was so excited that Tia is here with us and still am, um, because she's really provided a, a, a deeper view and she's really highlighting the things that um, we're kind of not asking, I think, collectively um, right now as science communicators. And so when we think about things that we can actually do, I think we need to start challenging the institutions, challenging the sort of practices um, that we've sort of thought were 
just how things are. And so if we start to pick that apart, I think we're gonna start to notice who's not there. Um, and that I think will actually make meaningful strides, both not just in science, but in science communication, because it's science participation among us as science communicators ourselves, which we've talked about a lot, um, but also among how do we get members of the public to participate in ways that are meaningful and that resonate with them, but also reflect what's important to them. Um, and I think that's where that connection piece and communication and building society, if you will, piece comes from, is that connection point. And I just, I think we're not totally there yet. And that may open up a whole realm of new approaches to science communication when we start to, to move that direction. Yeah, it's interesting. We talk about representation being all female sitting here, but uh, I don't know if I have noticed that in um, a lot of the, how would I say, representation of scientists at doctors and science in general, they're all very geared towards showing a male participant or role model. So even something as simple as gen, as uh, differences between or representing women is really important. Um, that so that's why for example when i make videos and images and when i choose gifts um with that has something to do with what we do in science i always make the effort of make those figures that is showing in the image as female because representation is important and i don't know if you guys <clears throat> kept up or uh if you noticed there was a conversation on twitter about Discovery Channel starting a show about science and all of their uh, experts that they represented were male and, and not one female was yes, chosen. Did you see yes. that? Um, and this uh, really brought out um, just all of the uh, the the artist in every 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 science person on Twitter from my experience because not only was it all men it was predominantly white men and there was actually one woman if you a blink and you miss moment in in the in the commercial um, and she's she looks kind of like you know just uh she she's she looks like a, a stereotypical quote unquote native person in the rainforest. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. <laughs> no, like it's 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 worth a laugh because it's ridiculous. Um, and I I just remember watching so many science communicators on Twitter, and just you know like throwing out so many backhand comments about this whole thing. Um, and it really uh, it, it really just shows. But but at the same time, something good did come out of it because all of these people from all these different backgrounds, all these, di and all these different identities uh, were coming out of, uh, out of Twitter and saying like, Hey, out of the shadows, out of the shadows and saying, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a woman of color and I am in this field or, you know, I am a bisexual woman and I'm in this field or, um, you know, I, I come from this background, this background and this background. And so it really like in that moment, we discover just how diverse science is and it's not a matter of of that there is a lack of diversity but simply there is a lack of inclusion and that is representation, and, representation. Yeah. and and that's that's why we're we're all here talking about this because the people are there um but they are simply 
not held uh, held up as high as as some other particular individuals, or even acknowledged. Exactly, and so it's our responsibility yeah. to you know not not to be their voice, but to be their megaphone. And I think that's important is that those of us that have that position of um, privilege or um, power, I don't love that word, but um, in the sense of institutional power, you know, it's our job to make sure that we are actually asking those questions. Um, so I want to, you know, see if what, what Tia's thoughts are on this, because I think we've covered a lot of different aspects of this, but again, Tia, you're the expert. What say you? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> um, I mean, as far as Twitter goes, I I don't stress it enough. I, I was working at a summer camp for high schoolers actually at MIT just a few weeks ago, and I made a point to give a presentation on the power of social media, just getting these kids involved from all different backgrounds, because Twitter has just been such an amazing tool. Like you said, when that video came out and all of these uh, backhanded tweets came out from women, uh, women of different groups. Um, it was kind of amazing, actually, and I found a whole new community of people to be involved with. Um, and just like on the daily, that's just so incredible for me because I sometimes can walk into a building as a physics student and not interact with anyone who's not a white man over the age of 40. Um, but then I can log into Twitter and then, you know, it's people like me that I get to communicate with. Um, and that's really comforting, um, especially just random times throughout the day if I'm ever feeling discouraged. You know, I have my support group right there. So, Chia, how do you suggest we get those white men over 40 involved in this discussion? Uh, you had mentioned training. Um, so, obviously, I'm not a faculty person at a college, but uh, training, uh, I've, I've seen it be successful, but I've also seen it not taken very seriously. Um, I think it needs to be implemented everywhere. Uh, obviously, I think that would be an incredible thing, but until people who are already established can take these problems seriously, um, I don't think it's going to be as effective as it could be. And it's unfortunate because not everybody who experiences the problems that some groups face don't necessarily see there being a problem and can kind of just, you know, scoff or laugh. But, you know, Empathy is really the biggest thing here. I think if we can get those people to see that, yes, there is a problem, um, I think they'll be more willing to help out with the goals of people who are underrepresented. Exactly. Yeah, and I don't think uh, these, uh, you know, senior people who are in places of power and decision-making, I don't think they realize the important mental health component of uh, well, doing science on its own is really uh, stressful, but then having to deal with extra these extra issues is important. And again, um, we uh, I don't think that's even considered. It's not on the radar. That's interesting, actually. There's there's a whole another conversation I think about uh, various components of mental health, and I think that's a really important one that you brought up, Sherry. Yeah, and actually, I just wanted to. Uh, well, maybe we can do that at the end, but I mean, it's so relevant here. I'm going to put it in that our uh, wonderful intern has summarized a paper on uh, mental health and the value of social media and online platforms for people who are suffering with mental health. Um, so she's written a summary and we're going to be publishing it soon. Uh, and that is relevant, very relevant to the discussions I see on Twitter uh, you just go on Twitter and there's 
graduate students and postdocs constantly talking about their struggles with mental health. And it's a big piece of, you know, also finding communities to talk about in safe, in safe ways, um, you know, which can be uh, across a variety of different things, whether it's feeling, uh, you know, included or excluded from, from different systems or practices uh, that, you know, we're interacting with as scientists um, or, you know, across the board. I think that's a big piece of this is, is finding those communities to talk about. And then, of course, um, there's strength in numbers as well, right? So it, it amplifies voices. Um, so I think that's an important place to start. Um, I would love to talk more about what we actually can do to make sure that people actually who may not necessarily be included in all of these processes, the decision making, um, and ultimately the outcomes that we see in science communication, uh, what we can do to actually change that. Because I think that's the big question there. And that is way bigger of a question than we have to discuss in 30 minutes. Um, but I, I kind of want to leave our audience thinking about that question. It's the first, you know, first thing that we, you know, is to make sure that people who normally have not been included actually have a chance to speak and to show up and that we recognize that. And I think we've covered that pretty well in today's discussion about representation, uh, but that's not enough. And so I really want to push our audience to think creatively, especially for those in our audience who actually are in those positions of privilege and power and that have the ability to change systems and to change our institutions and to make things better and more equitable for everyone. Um, but what do we actually do about it? How do we change the policies? How do we change the structures and the designs of these institutions? How do we, how do we make space? How do we get everybody to be able to participate and actually participate in a meaningful way, not just show up, but be part of the process. Um, so it's kind of like, I guess an analogy might be, um, we've kind of talked about inviting people to the party, but once they show up at the party, do you ask them to dance? And I think that's where we wanna kind of focus in when we talk about inclusion. Um, that's the, those are the bigger questions I think that we need to start to address um, because representation and diversity um, which are almost, in my mind, one and the same. We, we talk a lot about that, and I think that's where a lot of the literature has come from. But again, I think this paper, I think Tia's you know, illuminated this. Um, our conversations that we've had on Twitter have been really enlightening um, of now what? What happens after people show up to the party? Um, where, do, where do we go from here? And so I, I think those are the questions that we need to be asking. And so when we have these conversations, can we push that? Can we talk about those real actionable steps that we can take to move towards actually having everyone part of the process? Yeah, I want to hear about uh, some of your specific goals you want to accomplish on Twitter and how can we help you? How can we support you? Oh gosh, okay, on Twitter. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I started out Twitter and my blog as like, I think I had like 20 followers at first um, and that was nice and calm. Um, <laughs> and now my audience has grown to over 2,000 people, which is a little bit daunting, um, especially mm -hmm. because my Twitter account... Um, I try to be my most authentic self. I've kind of played around with the idea of having a professional versus private Twitter account, but I think for people who are in similar situations, such as I, who are graduate students, um, I don't think it's beneficial for them to just see me 
talking about papers or talking about science yeah. and ignoring the whole human side of, you know, like, oh, I'm anxious today. Oh, I'm sad today. Like, you know, those things happen in grad school and they can't just not be talked about. Um, yeah. But it does make for an interesting mix of content. Um, but as far as my goals go moving forward, um, I definitely want to be able to have a platform so not necessarily for myself, but I want it so that I can kind of highlight resources for people who need them. Like, for instance, I think the other day, you know, like providing scholarships for women of color. That does not apply to me. Um, but I think that more people who have audiences should be trying to push uh, for things like that. But even if they don't necessarily apply for themselves, we just need more people to see them. So just making space um, and getting up there so that you can maybe even step down and let some other people rise up there as well. You know, um, I get tagged in quite a bit of like, you know, tag a scientist, uh, making sure I'm tagging people who maybe don't necessarily have huge audiences too, so that they can get a chance to participate in the conversation. I think that's all really important. And those are just some of the Twitter goals right now. Yeah, I have a practical question for Tia. So uh, thank you, Tia, for joining us today. It's been a very interesting conversation as a follow-up to our Twitter chat. But uh, on the practical side, where can people get in touch in with you? What's your Twitter account exactly and your website maybe so people can, can get in touch and follow up? Absolutely. Uh, we've mentioned my Twitter. It's just my name. It's at Tia underscore Martineau, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-A-U. Uh, but again, it's a mix of content. So if you'd like to skip the personal stuff, I do have a website. It's just www.tiamartineau.science. And there's a contact form there. Well, I think, you know, we're, we're almost out of time for this conversation today. And this is a big one. So let's keep talking about this on Twitter. Let's keep talking about this on the Facebook pages. Let's keep talking about this on Instagram. Let's keep talking about this. I think that's, you know, where we keep moving forward with this is that we keep this dialogue alive and we keep generating new ideas and we keep trying stuff um, to keep moving forward. Um, but before we leave and depart our conversation today, I wanted to give everyone a heads up that during our next Twitter chat, Ms. Navenna herself will be sharing some of the amazing things that she learned about during the biodiversity conference that she attended in Lisbon, Portugal. And she may be joined by Ruben Oliveria, one of the organizers of the conference. Yay! Yes, so... Yes, uh, Ruben just uh, responded to our request. Uh, we did record already a podcast with Ruben before the event. So if you haven't listened to that, go back to our previous episode and listen to it. It's great. So uh, it seems that he'll be able to join us for the recap post event. And I have to tell you that the event was awesome. And there are really nice aspects about it that I really want to share with everyone who was not necessarily able to attend. The Twitter feed during the event was quite lively. So yeah, stay tuned for the next Twitter chat and the following podcast to um, hear the highlights from the event. So thanks everyone for joining us today. That's all the time we had for this conversation. Again, thanks Tia for joining us and for doing this amazing job in giving a, a field for everyone who feels underrepresented or necess not necessarily sufficiently represented to join the conversation as well. 
thanks to our wonderful co-hosts. As usual, you've been amazing. Make sure our listeners to follow us on Twitter at psychom underscore JC to participate in the conversations as well. Subscribe to our newsletter as well to receive updates of our upcoming events, Twitter chat, post podcast releases, and summary of interesting psychomy topics in general. You can do that via our, our, via our website, www.psychomjc.org. So it has been mentioned today during our discussion that we have a brand new type of content on our webpage, summaries of books and articles that are rela related to science communication, outreach, and generally interesting science topics. Uh, those summaries are thanks to our great new intern, Kimia, which is summarizing those books and articles, and she's posting them on our webpage. So again, if you want to check those out, and I think you really should, go to www.psychomjc.org. If you're interested in doing an internship with our team, which is a new opportunity since we're having a great time with Kimia as our intern, get in touch again via the website or via Twitter. Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the Psychom JC team, it's produced and edited by me, Nevena Christosova, and our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 11th episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you liked it, make sure to share it with your friends and family and to let us know via our channels for communication. Till next time and stay nerdy.